that you've gathered really from across this nation. You've brought us here to Hillsboro that we might serve one another. And I pray that you would continue to strengthen us as individuals, but also as a local body of believers that we might continue to be greater lights of you here in the Portland area and around the world. And I pray that uh, your word here in John 14 would have an impact that would strengthen us and truly empower us to accomplish that purpose. That the result of it would be a comfort to our hearts that really is above and beyond what we would ask or even imagine. And so we ask that you would do far above more, far above what we could ask or imagine through your word today. Open our hearts and empower your word, Holy Spirit. We ask this in your name. Amen. John 14, 15 to 24. Jesus stated, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So knowing that he's about to depart from them permanently, Jesus takes this somber time to confront his, sorry, comfort his disciples. And in particular, what he does is he gives three comforting promises, all of which essentially focus on the coming presence of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus also emphasizes that these promises are to be exclusive to them. These are not something that will be enjoyed by the rest of the world. They're exclusive to his followers. And the promises that he gives form the outline of today's text. The first is the promise of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus speaks to that in verses 15 to 17. So the promise of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, he gives a promise of his own return. So the promise of Jesus' return in verses 18 to 20. And the third promise he gives to comfort them is of his own manifestation. He says, I will manifest myself to you in that day. And that's verses 21 to 24. So the three promises, the promise of the Holy Spirit, the promise of Jesus' return, and the promise of Jesus' manifestation. Now let us remember that the disciples right now are expecting to be part of Jesus' messianic kingdom in just a few hours. They came into this dinner expecting the world to be changed with the Messiah sitting upon the throne of Israel. But that's not what they hear from Jesus. In fact, Jesus' statement that he's going away is nothing but disturbing. They don't have the categories for this. They, they don't have any concept what this is going to mean for them. And furthermore, they don't, because of that, grasp why this promise of the Holy Spirit is so comforting. 
They don't really understand even how much they need him. That is, they don't even realize how broken they are. And so even when Jesus gives this promise, they still don't understand why he must go from them and why this very promise is so comforting. And that's what Jesus is trying to communicate. And really that's my um, desire today is to illustrate how wonderful the gift of the Holy Spirit is to us. So that when we leave, there would be a treasuring of Him and His presence. So the first promise that Jesus gives is the promise of the Holy Spirit. Verses 15 through 17. He, he writes in, or states in verse 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now verse 15 needs very little commentary. It's very straightforward. If a person loves Jesus... So if they love him, that will be manifested in their obedience to his word. But what we should recognize is what follows, what Jesus states in verse 16. Jesus understands that such a statement could easily be misunderstood. He knows how sinful and how broken, how weak, how easy it is for these disciples to misunderstand his words. And he knows how impossible it will be for them to fulfill his commandments on their own strength. And so he states in verse 16 that I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus emphasizes to them that he will give them a helper so that they can obey his commandments. That word helper is the word parakletos. It means comforter, advocate, counselor. The the, the basic, that's how it's translated in various versions, the basic Meaning of the word is to come along, a person who comes alongside another person to assist them, to help them. And notice also that he's called another helper. He's another helper. He is like Jesus. That's who the other person is referencing. He is the, Jesus is departing and the Holy Spirit is going to take his place. Spirit is going to be like that of Jesus. He is going to teach. He's called the Spirit of Truth, just as Jesus taught. He's going to bear witness to the truth, just as Jesus did. And the Holy Spirit does that through various signs and miracles. And He's going to counsel and help and advise the disciples. That gets developed even later on in the next few chapters. And this is also how the disciples already know Him. Because his presence has been with them from the beginning as he was with Christ. But after Christ atones for the disciples through his death and his resurrection, that presence that dwelt with Christ is going to indwell each of them personally. They're going to have the same power that Christ himself had. So one reason this is an, the Holy Spirit is a comforter is because he's our helper. Another reason we should be comforted by the promise of the Holy Spirit is because he's the healer of our brokenness. Jesus can't give the disciples the kingdom they want because if he did, they would never be able to fully enjoy it. And this is the main reason he came. Jesus came to the world in order to heal our brokenness, to heal the disciples' brokenness, and to restore them to be able to function according to their original design, that they might glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Because in their present state, they couldn't. They would always fail. But this healing can't take place unless He dies. Jesus has to die in order for the Holy Spirit to come and for that work to be accomplished. 
and the healing and empowerment they need, that we need, will be accomplished through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit as He changes our hearts and guides us into truth. So He's going to change their hearts. That's one way He's going to heal the disciples. And in changing their hearts, Jesus used the phrase um, to Nicodemus, they need to be born again which means they are no longer going to be slaves of sin. Their inward being is going to be made alive again. They were, as Paul says in um, Ephesians chapter 2, they're dead in their trespasses and sins, but when the Holy Spirit comes, He makes them alive again. That they can actually choose to do things in the honor of Christ. So He's going to change their hearts. Secondly, He's going to guide them into truth. He's going to heal their ignorance. Another way that we're broken besides our self-worship is we're ignorant. We can't tell what the future holds. We can't even discern truth half the time. Well, the Holy Spirit guides them, guides us into truth. That's why He's called the Spirit of Truth here and also in John sixteen thirteen. When the Spirit of Truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. A third way... This is such a significant promise is that the Holy Spirit will be a permanent part of them. See, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit might come upon a person, came upon Saul, came upon David, but it was not permanent. He will be with them forever, Jesus says. And just grasp that. Recognize The presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer is not dependent upon circumstances. It's not dependent upon righteousness. It's not dependent upon our faithfulness. His presence is simply permanent because He has chosen to dwell within us permanently. He will never leave the disciples. An amazing gift. Jesus continues as He explains another promise that He will return to them. He says in verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. So Jesus states this because He can see it in their eyes, I'm imagining, that they're concerned with His statement, I have to leave. He wants to comfort them, to to help them recognize He's not abandoning them. That's why He uses the term orphan. That's what they fear. See, just think about it. They have followed Him for three years. And all of a sudden, when they're expecting Him to establish His kingdom, He says, I'm gone. He cuts cuts out on Him. He says He's leaving to go to the Father. And so now, they have no concept of what moving forward is going to look like. I mean, if you think about it, Everything the disciples did up to this point was just follow him. Even when, when they went in, uh, out, out two by two into various cities and performed miracles and cast out demons, they did that because Jesus told them to do it. But if he's gone, how are they going to have any sense of direction? I mean, just, a, just feel what that abandonment must be like for them. And so he comforts them. He says, I'm not abandoning you. In fact, just the opposite is true. In leaving them, He is actually enabling them and empowering the disciples to fulfill the purpose for which He came. To establish His kingdom. The presence of the Holy Spirit in their lives is going to allow them to personally participate in the establishment of Christ's kingdom amongst the nations. He's empowering them, not abandoning them. But the disciples will not get to enjoy the fruits of their faithfulness and rest in the kingdom that, they're, that they were expecting. They won't get to enjoy that rest until Jesus' work is fully accomplished. And until after they have died and they receive resurrected bodies. And this is the subtle hope offered in verse 19. Look at it. He says, Yet a little while, 
and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. So Jesus hints at his resurrection here. Just as he himself will rise from the dead, likewise, so will the apostles after their commission is complete. They will get to enjoy what they thought they were going to enjoy in just a few hours, but to an even greater extent, far beyond what they could even imagine. But it would again, it would be after they die. After they give up their lives in fulfilling His commission. But just think of it. Everybody in this this room, just as everybody who's ever lived, will taste death. Your spouses, your kids, there is going to come a time when we will die. And the great comfort that's offered here is that we can have hope. No other religion offers this. Not to this degree. Because Christ proved we would get resurrected bodies by rising Himself from the dead. And that's what He says here. Because I live, you also will live. Think about that. What can man do to you? If, you know, if, if the worst they can do is kill you, which is going to happen anyway, and think of the comfort you have. A song that just blessed my heart this week is the great Easter hymn, um, Jesus Christ Has Risen Today. And I think it's the words, uh, Made like Him, like Him we rise. Christ has conquered paradise. Something like that. I might have that wrong. Open. He's open paradise. He's open paradise. Think about that. We will rise. So the Holy Spirit changes our hearts now, making our spirits new, and He will renew our flesh when we get our resurrected body. This is Spoken of in Romans 8.11. The Holy Spirit is actually the one who will transform our perishing bodies that have turned into dust by that point into glorious bodies that will shine like the stars. That's how they're described in Daniel. The very end of Daniel. It's amazing. But until that point, we have to battle. We have to make war against sin because our flesh is still corrupted by sin. We have to make war against our sin. Which is why Jesus emphasizes here the need to obey His commandments. It brings us to verse 21 and the promise of Jesus' manifestation. He repeats again, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. See, although Judas is probably encouraged to hear that Jesus is going to manifest himself again to them after he departs, he's totally confused by it. If if you're going away and you're going to the Father, but it's so that you could establish your kingdom and you're going to come back, How is it that you're going to manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Because, Jesus, if you're going to establish your kingdom, people are going to see you. If you're the ruler of the world, people are going to see you. He's totally confused. He doesn't get it. And why would he? See, notice how Jesus responds to Judas' question, though. 
If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. See, Jesus, upon hearing this question, just as he does with so many people as we've seen already in John, goes to the deeper heart issue. He goes to the deeper heart issue with Judas. What he wants Judas to grasp is he's going to manifest himself by dwelling in them. That's what he's speaking to. It's not just the fact that he's going to appear to them after the resurrection, but something even far greater. He is going to abide in them. And he states specifically, we will come to him and make our home with him. This is specifically referring to the presence of the Holy Spirit who will permanently live within them in his power and his presence. Jesus also repeats what he stated with, sorry, started with, that we need to keep his commands. So, in short, what he wants the disciples to recognize is that life in Christ essentially comes down to two things. He wants to make this as simple as possible to them. Two things. First of all, their responsibility, which is obedience. Judas, keep my commandments. Keep my word. That's your job. That's your responsibility. And secondly, he wants them to understand the confidence that they should have that God will love them and he will take care of them. In other words, their two responsibilities are to trust and to obey. That is that is the summary of the Christian life. That is how to live the Christian life, to trust God and to obey God. To trust in his sovereign power in all of life and especially in the times where you're being tried and when you're being tempted to trust his sovereign power. And secondly, to always make obedience the aim of your life. So when you're trying to discern what should I be doing right now, especially if you're being tried or especially if you're being tempted and you're trying to figure out, God, what is it that I should do? And you're wrestling with it and you feel the war of the flesh against the spirit. Make obedience your aim. Try to discern what what is it that I've called to do? What does the Bible tell me to do? What is obedience? And the emphasis of Jesus throughout this passage is for the disciples to just grasp these two simple truths. Trust that God loves you and is with you and he will take care of you. And obey his word. So why does Jesus make such a big issue out of obedience? That's the question that just pops out to my mind as I wrestle with it this week. Why is obedience such a big deal to him? Why does he keep repeating it? And secondly, how is that tied to the Holy Spirit being manifest in us? What is the connection between obedience and the Holy Spirit? I recognize that the promise of the Holy Spirit may not immediately seem all that amazing. Maybe because we've grown up in the church and we know the Holy Spirit. Um, Just as even the disciples failed to grasp what Jesus was promising to them. But the Holy Spirit is the greatest treasure anybody has ever received. He is the greatest thing anybody has ever received. And also, His presence, I would say, is probably one of the most ignored aspects of the Christian life. Even though He's the the source of the Christian life, I would say we probably ignore Him, more ignore His power, ignore His presence probably than anything else. And I think it's because He's not fully appreciated. We've failed to understand the Holy Spirit, I think, in large part. And I think part of that is because He's often misunderstood. Being God, people think of the presence of the Holy Spirit being revealed particularly in terms of the sensational and the supernatural. And, and we talk about the Holy Spirit in, in, in the church, we tend to think of just His miraculous um, demonstrations of power, like healings, uh, prophecy, speaking in tongues, 
things that cannot be naturally explained. But the Holy Spirit primarily manifests Himself in far greater and more pleasant and more satisfying ways than that. Remember, what is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, self-control. Galatians 5, 22-25. The primary way the Spirit manifests Himself is by producing such fruit in a person's heart. That is how the Spirit manifests Himself. That is His aim. That's what He wants to do. And note that this fruit is not the result of circumstances. It's not the result of spiritual maturity. It's not the result of theological knowledge. It's simply the result of His presence. That is, somebody can have this. The newest believer, the youngest believer, the most tried believer can have the fruit of the Spirit any time within their life because His fruit is not dependent upon anything external. It's simply determined upon Him. That's what He wants to do. And that's what's so amazing. And He will be with us forever. And if so, these fruits can, and dare I say, should be manifest in the believer all the time. And that may be what's hardest to believe of anything that I say today. But the fruit of the Spirit, we are told, is love, joy, peace, etc., So if that's the case, I have to ask myself, why is that not the case in my life? Many of you know me, and you would know that is not what would dominate my life. Sure, at times, but consistently, constantly, why not? What would hinder the Holy Spirit from producing such fruit? Well, notice what Paul says next in Galatians 5. So after Paul lists the fruit of the Spirit in verse 22 and 23, he writes this in verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So what prevents us from enjoying the fruit of the Spirit consistently in our lives? Disobedience. Not seeking to keep His commandments. See, now does it make sense why Jesus emphasizes here when He's speaking of the Holy Spirit, why He emphasizes, Judas, keep my commandments. You want to know about how I'm going to manifest myself to you, not to the world? Keep my commandments. That's what you need to focus upon. See, fruitfulness is inextricably tied to obedience. And that's in our character and in our lives. See, we tend to think of fruitfulness as being the result of our effort. We think in order for me to be fruitful in ministry, for instance, or even in cultivating these virtues in our heart, we tend to think that it's going to be on the basis of our harder work, our greater self-discipline, our striving, So that if we just work hard enough, accomplish the right goals, control enough things in our lives, then we can have love, joy, peace, patience, etc. But I would say such striving actually tends to have the very opposite effect in the Christian life. Because at its root, such striving is actually self-worship. A failure to understand. We fail to understand that we are so broken, we cannot 
produce such fruit in our lives. We can't make that fruit happen. It's not the result of discipline. It's not the result of knowing more. It's simply the result of the Holy Spirit being inside you, manifesting Himself through you. But see, we want to accomplish such things because if we did, if we had a life of fruitfulness, just in ministry, think of that, and and we were characterized by love and by joy and by patience and by peace and goodness and faithfulness, then people would be impressed with us. They would envy us. They might even write books about us. They'd want to be our friend. We'd be seen as special. See, I think even in our noblest pursuits, if we're honest, we are typically driven by some form of self-exaltation. We want to be seen as special. We are so broken that most of what we pursue in our lives, even the good things, at its root, is often quickly turned into just vainglory at its end. But genuine, substantial, long-lasting love, joy, and peace that is real love, joy, and peace that that lasts, that's from the Spirit, not just from the world. Because the reality is the world can produce these things. It can. Just go kiss somebody. You'll get some joy. But there'll be consequences afterwards. Which won't be so pleasant. Sin does produce this sort of fruit. It just doesn't last. It'll leave you even feeling more empty inside if it's sinful. But even if it's a good thing. Even the best things. A present. You're going to get a present, I bet, for Christmas this year. And you'll enjoy it for a short time. It just doesn't last. And it's not bad. that Those things aren't necessarily bad. But it's not what the Holy Spirit promises. He doesn't say He's going to give you that superficial fruit, but the kind of fruit that will produce in you such love and joy and peace that you can say with Paul, I have learned in whatever situation to be content, whether to be abased or to abound. Where you can have those things not dictated by circumstances but because it's from the Spirit. Such substantial, genuine fruit can never be achieved. You can't achieve this fruit. It can only be received. The fruit of the Spirit, the real fruit that we long for in our hearts can never be achieved. It can only be received. So how are they received? How do we receive such fruit in our life? Well, imagine that you're feeling hungry. And so you call out for somebody to to bring you some fruit to eat. And if you even say it's Jesus, He comes to you with a platter of fruit. He doesn't just give you one fruit. He comes to you with a platter and He offers it before you. How do you receive that fruit? You take it. You receive it. But in order to take the platter, recognize you're going to have to let go of what else you might be carrying. You have to let go of what else you might be holding on to. And the letting go is the keeping of His commands. Try and explain. I believe the primary things that keep us from enjoying the fruitfulness of the Holy Spirit in our lives are usually the very things that keep us from enjoying that fruit. The things we think are going to bring us that fruit of joy and peace and goodness and faithfulness, what we think is going to bring it is actually the very things that's keeping us from receiving the fruit that He's offering. We're so afraid to let go of what we're holding on to that we think is going to make us happy. Because what happens if we let go of it? We can't have that fruit. 
That's right. Jesus doesn't want you to have cheap imitation fruit. He wants you to have the real thing because that's what will show His power and presence in a darkened world. It will show that you're true, you're genuine. Why must we let go of things in order to enjoy the fruit of the Spirit? Well, I think there's two reasons. First, the love, joy, and peace that those things provide, again, are superficial and they're temporary. They can never satisfy you. But the fruit of the Holy Spirit, it's permanent. Permanent because He is permanent. Secondly, again, they're typically rooted and are self-oriented. They're typically rooted in self-worship, is what I mean to say, rather than God-oriented. The things we tend to hold on to, they tend to be about self rather than God. So again, the only thing, when you think about how do you receive the fruit of the Spirit, it's simply by receiving. Our responsibility, besides receiving, is to simply trust and obey. If you are obedient, He will meet all of your needs. You don't need to hold on to that stuff. Remember the promise He gave in the Sermon on the Mount? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. You're obedient. And all of these things will be given unto you. If you're obedient, if that's what you're making the aim of your life, He'll give you all that you need. Now, you might not be able to hold on to something that you're thinking is going to be happy. You might end up living in an apartment instead of a a five-bedroom house. But the five-bedroom house isn't what's going to... If that's what the Lord directs you to... The five-bedroom house isn't what's going to make you happy. What makes you happy? What gives you joy? Spirit. And it's better joy than any house, any car, any other person could ever offer. So to put it another way, if you want to love like Christ, you don't need to read a bunch of books. You don't need to get counsel from experts. You don't need to wait for that other person in your life to start loving you first. You simply need to receive the love given to you by the Holy Spirit and you will enjoy this fruit assuming that you just continue to walk in the Spirit. If you want joy, you don't need more money. You don't need a different job. You don't need to change your circumstances. You simply have to receive it and continue to obey. If you want peace, You just need to receive it. If you want patience, receive it. If you want to have a fruitful life where God uses you above and beyond any any way you could possibly imagine, you simply need to trust and obey Him. So to be clear, I want to be clear on this point. It's not in keeping Jesus' commands that allows us to have the Holy Spirit. He comes to us when we submit our lives to Him and, and, and cry out to Christ to change our heart. And he's, he's permanently there. So it's not keeping Jesus' commands that give us the Holy Spirit, but it's through keeping His commands that we continue to enjoy His full power and presence. That's, that's how we enjoy the fruit of the Spirit is by keeping His commands. As Paul says in Romans 8, verse 12, So then, brothers, we're debtors not to the flesh, to to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You have the Holy Spirit, put to death the flesh and live according to the Spirit. And you will enjoy His fruit. Now, it might seem immediately... That what I'm teaching, what what the Scripture's teaching, might be encouraging passivism in the Christian life. What I mean by that is that one should just simply let go and let God. Kind of throw off responsibility. Besides just striving and disciplining. So that, that such teaching would actually discourage striving and hard work. 
But the opposite is actually true. Please flip to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and look at verse 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says this in verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. It wasn't by Paul's work. It was by the grace of God. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. He's talking about the apostles. He worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was in me. So his point is that you should still strive, but you strive according to the strength that God supplies. And at the same time, you you recognize that you're not supposed to think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, that you're limited in your opportunities and your, your gifts. Or to put it another way, Striving and hard work aren't the problem. But why we are striving and what we're striving after. You will strive, but you strive to honor God. And in doing so, He will produce good fruit. So are you saying that if I receive the Holy Spirit and I'm born again, that all I need to simply do is obey God's Word and Strive to walk in the Spirit and that then I will enjoy a fruitful life of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, etc. Absolutely. That's absolutely what I'm saying. And yet, I don't think that means it's going to be easy. As you know. Because we are still living in a very corrupted flesh. It does not take much to get us to not obey a commandment. We are so easily tempted to fear, to pride, to lust, to greed. It doesn't take much at all. And we'll often pursue those things and do so in the name of Christ. And deceive ourselves. We are far more broken than we actually realize. The reason we struggle to have the fruit of the Spirit in our life isn't because the Spirit's impotent. It's because we are really weak. We are really flesh-y. We like our flesh far too much. And we easily yield. And part of that's because we're far too confident in our own efforts to accomplish what this Holy Spirit Himself can only bring. We really think that we can accomplish love, joy, peace, patience in our own striving. Far too confident in our own means and our own knowledge of what we need. And another reason I don't think it's easy is because the, uh, beside the Word of God, as a means that God uses. So it's in reading the Word of God, keeping His commands, that God helps us to walk in the Spirit. The other reason it's hard to um, see such fruit manifest in our lives is because the other means He uses, besides the Word of God to help us, is suffering. So God uses means to prune us. Every vine, the vine dresser, prunes. We'll look at that in a couple weeks. And every branch that does not bear fruit, bear fruit, that does bear fruit, sorry, God prunes, it says. Also, James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, Lacking in nothing. So, living a life of obedience is not easy because we are so easily tempted. We, are, we, we struggle with the flesh and that's not going away. It will never go away. The things that you fight right now, you'll be fighting for the next 30, 40, 50 years until the Lord takes you home. The other reason it's hard is because God will use suffering in your life to teach you to trust Him. Because it's in the midst of suffering. And this is what makes Paul's experience so glorious, that he can know what it means to be abased 
and at the same time be totally content. Because the power of contentment didn't come from his circumstances. It came from the Holy Spirit. The power of his ability to reach the world with the gospel wasn't because of Paul's brilliance or hard work even. It was because of the Holy Spirit in him. In the 1800s, a popular teaching that emerged in Ireland was called the Higher Life Movement. And it was propagated by a man named Keswick, spelled K-E-S-W-I-C-K. And he taught that Christians at some point in their life would experience a crisis moment. And during that crisis moment, they would recognize their brokenness and their eyes would be open to see that, that they're so broken that all they really need to do is passively experience oneness with Christ. And in doing so, they would therefore experience the fullness of God. Unfortunately, it unbiblically overemphasized passivity to the degree that it led many people to actually um, burn out in the ministry. It was really popular amongst the mission field. And even some people abandoned the faith entirely because it it didn't last. But one person who was helpfully impacted by the Keswick teaching was Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China. See, Taylor was mature enough to see the elements of truth, the good, we should call it, in Keswick's teaching, and throw away the bad. And so for Taylor, the the teaching about the oneness with God didn't actually lead to his burnout. It rather sustained him over the rest of his life. John Piper writes this in his biography of Hudson Taylor. Unlike many who claimed a higher life experience, Hudson Taylor's experience really did lift him to a plane of joy and peace and strength that lasted all his life. He wrote, Never again did unsatisfied days come back. Never again was the needy soul separated from the fullness of Christ. And just before turning 60, Taylor was in Melbourne. And an Episcopalian minister who had heard of Keswick and had spent time with Hudson Taylor wrote this about Hudson Taylor. Here was the real thing. An embodiment of the Keswick teaching such as I had never hoped to see, because everything, everybody, everybody else he had seen that, it, that embodied it had just made shipwreck of their faith, and it, was, it wasn't based in real truth. He said, here was the real thing, an embodiment of the Keswick teaching, such as I had never hoped to see. It impressed me profoundly. Here was a man, almost 60 years of age, bearing tremendous burdens, yet absolutely calm and untroubled. And if you know Hudson Taylor's life, what he bore during this point of his life was horrific. It was during the Boxer Rebellion. and He had lost many of his colleagues whom he oversaw to the persecution. Many missionaries were killed and slaughtered and he was responsible for them. Had to maintain finances coming in. Uh, challenges in his own family. He had deaths in his family that he had to endure. Just constant trials. And yet he was absolutely calm and untroubled. Piper continues, The difference between Taylor's experience and the others who bought into the Keswick teaching was that Taylor continued to actively fight against sin and devote himself to Scripture. And he learned to embrace suffering recognizing that it was in the pruning by the vine dresser that he might bear more fruit. So that was the difference. Those three things again. He actively fought against sin, devoted himself to Scripture, and learned to embrace suffering. That's how, that's how he was different from the other people who embraced Keswick's teaching. At the heart of the discovery was that the fruit of the vine comes from abiding, not striving. And this is what Taylor wrote about what he had learned. To let my loving Savior work in me, His will. My sanctification is what I would live for by His grace. Abiding, not striving or struggling. Looking off unto Him. Trusting Him for present power. 
resting in the love and almighty Savior. How do I get faith strengthened? Not by striving after faith, but by resting on the faithful one. See, what Taylor learned was to, in other words, was to fully enjoy the presence of the Holy Spirit. He learned to fully enjoy it. So in summary, Jesus is leaving his disciples in this passage in order that he might die for them and rise again, which will secure for them the greatest gift they could ever receive, the presence of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one who will change our heart and cleanse us from all of our sin, causing us to be born again. And it's by the Spirit that all of your genuine fruitfulness will be accomplished, both in your character and in your ministry. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Right? We'll look at that in a few weeks. It's also by the Spirit that you will receive your resurrected body, according to Romans 8.11. So in summary, everything that you could possibly ever want or desire is offered to you in this amazing promise that Christ gives the disciples. If you would just receive it, it's for you. I close with 1 John 3.24. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in Him. And by this, we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. Father, these, this feels like dangerous, dangerous things to teach because it's so little experienced and yet it is so clear in Your Word. We do not doubt the power or the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But good, good night, Father. We do doubt ourselves. We are so weak. And I pray that a growing knowledge of our weakness would not lead to despair, but it would lead to us giving up on our own selves, our own selfish desires and our own self-confidence that we would learn to be done with self, crucifying self and its passions and desires so that we might truly enjoy what You offer to us in the Holy Spirit. Father, I so long that everyone in this church would be known as a, as a person who is full of love, self-sacrificial, Christ-like, foot-washing love and joy that is not based upon their circumstances and that is manifested all the more clearly when they're being tried and even tempted by peace, by patience, by kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. Make us such a people. Help us to be such a people. We ask these things in Your name. Amen.